Good evening. Om Masatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityur Mamritam Gamaya Mrityur Mamritam Gamaya Om Karmana Manasavacha Tvatunanya Gatirmama Antascharina Bhutanam Drashtatvam Parameshvara Om Shanti 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 Om, salutations to that truth which is the indweller, the self of myself. Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, may we have no goal in sight with all of our actions, with all of our thoughts, and with all of our speech, but Thee, Thou who art the Lord, the truth, the self of myself, the indweller. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good evening to friends, new and old, and cute dogs. Those Venn diagrams overlap a little bit. So tonight, something quite exciting ahead of us. Hey, Amanda is back. Welcome, dear Amanda G. Good, family has come back here towards the end of the year. It's nice to see you all, friends, brothers, sisters, siblings. So we're doing something interesting. We're in the second of three lectures now, leading up to Christmas on Lord Jesus Christ, his teachings, his life, um, and mostly in comparison to the life and teachings of the Buddha, Rama, Krishna, Sri Ramakrishna. So we're looking at Lord Jesus Christ in the light of Tantra, Kashmiri Shaivism, but also in the light of Vedanta, in the light of Yoga, in the light of Buddhism, both classical and, you know, Tantric. And we're, in that sense, really trying to commune with Jesus Christ in the most spiritual and authentic ways we, we can. So today, I think we're turning our attention to perhaps the juiciest thing to talk about when it comes to Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, everything is exciting to talk about when it comes to Lord Jesus Christ. Has the world ever seen such a paragon of spirituality? He is purity incarnate. He is love embodied. He is service personified. You know, you might not like the fan club, but you're almost always going to like Jesus. It's like someone once made a joke. I like Elvis, just not the fan club. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that with Jesus sometimes because one must extricate Jesus from the church. As Swami Vivekananda said, Christianity has become in many places churchianity. There's a difference between the exoteric institutions of religion and those truths that they claim to espouse. And maybe in some cases that difference is not so glaring, but insofar as it might be for you, I invite you to interact with this lecture today. Um, not as if we're talking about churchianity, but as if we're talking about Christianity, the life and teachings of the man, the Christ, who has, I think, above all, exemplified for us what true spirituality at its highest level looks like. In fact, I think we might even do a class on that wonderful book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas R. Kempis. You know, because you might be very interested to note, especially the Hindu nationalists among you, you know, who feel like Abrahamic religions are all colonization, etc. Uh, you might be very interested to know that when Swami Vivekananda wandered India as a wandering sadhu, as a monk, you know, and that's the time when he came to understand the plight that India was in. That's when he became a nationalist, mind you, when he saw what it was like to, you know, be poor in India trampled under the boots of two times colonization. He saw in India the suffering, the abject horror of Indian national life at the time. And so in Kanyakumari, as he was sitting and meditating, you know, legend has it, he swam across shark-infested waters to go and sit on the very edge of this rock promontory, you know, and he's sitting there meditating. And he had this wonderful vision. And it was to kind of revitalize India in this way, by rallying together all the sadhus and unleashing the spiritual force of India for the upliftment of humanity. He meant to give loaves and fish 
to the masses. And to do that, he wanted to harness the whole power of Indian spirituality through its sadhus, through its mendicants, its gurus and uh, yoginis and all of that. And he alighted upon that idea in Kanyakumari. And then he went to the West to like generate the interest and money to come back to the East and found what is today one of the biggest service missions in all over the world, Sri Ramakrishna's mission. Now, interestingly, you, you should note, the Hindu nationalists amongst us ought to note that Swami Vivekananda, when he wandered India, in the time when he was becoming a nationalist, he had only two books with him. Legendarily, they were the Bhagavad Gita, no surprise, of course, the essence of the Upanishads. As they said, if, you know, Krishna is a cow herd, and if the Upanishads are so many celestial cows, then Krishna milked the cows for a tall, strong, healthy glass of Gita. They have all the truths of the Upanishads. So, of course, this great sadhu, Swami Vivekananda, would walk around India with the Gita. But there was only one of two books. What do you think the other one was? Surprise, surprise, it was Thomas R. Kempis's Imitation of Christ. Because rarely do you find a book so in the spirit like that. So one day maybe we'll do a talk on that book and some of the beautiful teachings on humility and true spirituality that we find there. Genuine sadhana. It's a great manual for the spiritual aspirant. But today's lecture, though, is a bit in that vein because in studying the life and teachings of Lord Jesus Christ, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to live up to it. To the best of our ability, we're trying to imbibe as much as we can of the Lord's life and we're trying to live in the light of that. And the beauty about being Indian is that you've met many people in India along the Ganga, all over in temples like Chidambaram who have done that to a great degree who are living on absolutely nothing and yet are the wealthiest, richest people you'll ever meet. They just embody abundance because they truly believe themselves to be inheritors of cosmic wealth. They believe themselves to be the son of God, if not God himself. And they stride about India as paragons of virtue and selfless service. So Indians are lucky, those who have met sadhus, monks, nuns, even great householder sadhus. In some sense, you've tasted a bit of what the Christ might have been like in some semblance. So that's what I hope for us, whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, whatever you might identify with, or if you have a deep hatred for the church, just for the purposes, give me a chance, you know, just for the next hour or so, let's just look at the Christ as the Christ. You know, I I joked last week, this is actually a very controversial time of the year because there's nothing I love more really than, than Jesus except maybe Ramakrishna and the Buddha, but they're all on par with me. I love them all equally. And I've never found in this world greater spirituality than the teachings of Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, Ramakrishna. Now, that being the case, around Christmas time, I love to talk about Jesus. But you can't even imagine the amount of like emails and messages and anger that this is met with because people feel like I'm somehow betraying Sanatana Dharma in talking about Jesus. But that, to me, betrays your lack of understanding of Sanatana Dharma. Because when the Christians came, they were welcomed as brothers. They were understood for their spirituality. When the Muslims came, they too was welcome, were welcomed as brothers. <laughs> like Hazrat Inayat Khan and all of that. So it's in this message of great universal spirituality that we want to put aside all religion and just get to the heart of it. What is it to love God? What is it to practice meditation? What is it to move in the direction of truth, in the direction of that which is sacred? And it's in that context that we're having today's discussion. We're looking, I hope, at the juiciest part of the Christ Leela, and that is his crucifixion. I took a bit too long to get to this point. But basically what's going to happen tonight is we're going to ask this question. Did the Christ suffer? When he was crucified, you know, we know he cried out into the heavens, Elahi, Elahi, Lama Sabakhtani, which in Hebrew, I, I hope that I'm pronouncing it right. Forgive me uh, if I'm mistakenly pronouncing it. But apparently this statement is uh, Father, Father, or God, God, Elahi, Elahi, why hast thou forsaken me? 
God, why hast thou abandoned me? God, why have you given up? Or something like that. Now, the sentiment is heartrending. It's poignant. Here is a man who lived and died for God and in his final moment of agonizing torture, cries out to God, seemingly in despair. You know, he's obviously, for us, you know, who are looking on, in pain. He's being crucified. Gruesome. And just a few moments before that, he was dragged through the streets and people were jeering and calling him names and throwing rocks at him and other unmentionables at him. And he just bore it all and walked his way, carrying the cross on his back, which he built. Then shortly before that, he was tied to a whipping post and horribly abused, you know, by legionnaires. So like, it's not, it hasn't been a good day in the life of Jesus. I'm not talking about the Christ. I'm talking about the man, Jesus, you know, to be a man tied to a whipping post and abused and dragged through the streets and called names by the very people who profess to, you know, love you and worship you and follow you by your very devotees to be denied by those who are closest to you. And then to be put on a crucifix in front of your mother, you know, and it's almost too much for the heart to bear that such a thing could have happened to so pure and faultless a man. And so, you know, this, this scene, the passion of the Christ has evoked, at least in the Western imagination, a kind of morbid fascination. You know, you'll see the movies. What is it? What's his name? The Passion of the Christ. Who made that movie? I forget. It's a very gruesome one. <laughs> I very much the, like The Last Temptation of Christ. I think that's Scorsese. Also a very controversial film. Yeah, Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ. There's so much blood and horror. So the West particularly is very fixated with how much the Christ suffered. And after all, the argument goes like this. He had to have suffered. Because if the legend is the Christ was crucified for the sake of our sins, then given how horribly we've sinned, well, he better take on that karma and that means he better suffer because if he didn't suffer, what kind of sacrifice would that be? So typically the argument for those who want to see this in the light of suffering, it goes something like this. It's the Christ atoned for our sins and that meant he had to sacrifice something. And what could be a greater sacrifice than the sacrifice of the body, the sacrifice of comfort. So we had to endure great suffering and great pain in order for that atonement to have truly happened. So in some sense, we're like gladiators, you know, we want to see blood. Otherwise, we don't feel purified. Like we're fixated with the Christ suffering because maybe deep down inside, we feel the more he suffered, the less we'll need to. Or the more he suffered, um, the purer we are. Isn't that kind of sick? I think it's kind of sick that we're kind of counting upon him to have suffered greatly. We would have put him there on the cross ourselves if perhaps we knew that that act would mean that we would be cleansed of original sin. Can you imagine if truly your religion is based on being cleansed of original sin, then you like that that happened. In fact, you would want it to happen. And not only that, you would want it to happen horribly. So shame on you. You who profess to love the Christ are the same flock who would put him to the cross and glorify yourselves in his suffering. Shame on you. I think that's incorrect. And I'm going to strongly suggest that this narrative that the Christ suffered on the cross or worse, that he had to suffer on the cross is misdirected. I'd like to suggest an alternative narrative. Humbly, I'd like to put before you a new idea. And the idea is this, that he never at all suffered. Not once was there any suffering in the Christ in, through, in and throughout his life. Even in that final moment, even in the passion of the Christ, while he was there on the whipping post being whipped, I'm going to claim that he didn't suffer. While he was being dragged across the streets, forced to carry his cross, I'm going to claim that he did not suffer. When he was being jeered at and abandoned by those who professed love for him only a few moments ago, I will say that he did not suffer. And when he was put up on the cross, up to the final moment when he was stabbed by a spear, he did not suffer. Not once 
did this hero, this lion of a man suffer amidst lambs who only understand suffering? Ah, what can they know of the wolf and the strength of the spiritual master? No, not for them is suffering. You know, spiritual masters, they stride in this world like a wolf and lion among men. Nobody understands them. And how difficult then to understand this point that the Christ never suffered. So God willing, with the grace of God, it may be possible in the next hour or so to make this point. And I'd like to make it in a few ways, um, namely four. I'd like to suggest four ways in which the Christ didn't suffer. Um, but anyway, I think we ought to kind of address the elephant in the room. I kind of alluded it, alluded to it a few moments ago. Why then did he cry out to the sky, Father, Father, why has thou forsaken me? It seems like that's the best argument for the camp that says he did suffer. And I'm not even saying everyone in that camp wants him to suffer. I know that was rather harsh. <laughs> but I'm sure like some people in the camp really do feel bad that he suffered, but they still claim that he suffered. And the evidence for this is his very own cry out to the heavens. You know, like, obviously he suffered. Why else would he cry, Lama, Lama, why would he cry that if he wasn't suffering, right? Duh, this is obviously proof that he suffered. I don't think so. Because isn't that a psalm? It's Psalms 22. And today, I hope by the end of the lecture to read you that psalm and show you that in the 31 verses of that psalm, I'll read it to you from the King James translation. That's not the vibe of it at all. It's actually kind of loving and sweet and powerful. So I'm going to claim, like Swami Swahanandaji, actually this is, he first claimed this. I'm, I heard it from Swami Swahanandaji. I actually heard it from someone telling me about Swami Swahanandaji saying this, and it really moved me. Swami Swahanandaji said, the Christ was not crying out to God in the sense of suffering. He was simply quoting scripture as a holy man is wont to do. He was singing. The Christ was singing a psalm in the final hour of his glory. And I think that's a much more beautiful narrative. And the argument I'm going to make is, if he was suffering, how then could he have so easily forgiven his enemies? It's very difficult to forgive if you sense oppression. You cannot forgive your oppressors until you're no longer oppressed by them. See South African apartheid. It wasn't until the end of apartheid and during the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that many South Africans were, be, were able to, to forgive their oppressors. And it was one of the most powerful Christ-like moments in history. In fact, some uh, commentators actually called that Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened, they called it the Kleenex uh, con conference or something because everyone was crying. It was so beautiful. Do you know what happened, right? Like in South Africa, there was apartheid for uh, a long time Black South Africans were not allowed. To, it was just kind of like Jim Crow kind of stuff, right? But anyway, uh, they forgave their quote-unquote white oppressors. They just said it was okay and that they would move on and they would hold no grudges. It's very beautiful. It's very Christ-like. And it was uh, broadcasted internationally. So everybody could watch, just like watching the World Cup. You could watch. And by the way, I would argue the World Cup is also Shakti, the greatness of mother, you know, manifested as messy. Like that, the greatness of mother manifested as forgiveness was there in that Truth and Reconciliation Committee. But note, it was after apartheid is when they dismantled many of the structures, when they were being freed of many of the oppressive systems that they were able to finally, in, in a place of strength, say, I forgive you. It takes strength to forgive. If you're currently being oppressed, it's difficult to forgive. You can anecdotally verify that point. But once you're out of the situation, once you're through the thick of things, you can look back and then forgive from a place of strength. So here's my first claim in the lecture. The essence of forgiveness is forbearance. You cannot forgive while you are currently being tortured, you know, unless you didn't feel that torture as torture. You cannot forgive in the midst of oppression unless 
you didn't feel like that oppression was actually oppression. If you were beyond all oppression, then you would not feel, uh, you wouldn't have a grudge. You would forgive easily, right? That sounds kind of fair. That's the claim. That's, I guess, kind of the central theme in and throughout today's lecture. And I want to give you a bit of a story to demonstrate this point. So the principle is this, forgiveness is forbearance. If you can forbear, then forgiveness comes naturally and easily. So I think we titled the lecture something clickbaity, like how to forgive your enemies, right? And, and this is it. I'm just going to tell it to you up front. The way to forgive your enemies is to not have enemies. And the way to not have enemies is to not be the kind of person who could be bothered or oppressed by anybody. In other words, if you identify as a body, you will have enemies, old age, sickness, death, and all those people who exacerbate those things are your enemies. If you are a mind, you'll have even more enemies. All those who hate you, your naysayers, those who blame you, those who stand in your way, those who thwart your plans, all of these are your enemies. The ego has many enemies. The mind has many enemies. The body has many enemies. The spirit, Atman, the self, the no-self, being beyond body, mind, and ego, it has no enemies. And it is what you are. So from the point of view of Vedanta, or even Buddhism, taking a stand in that, in the truth of what you are, not what you will become after some spiritual practice, but what you are even now already, by taking a stand in that, you are in effect beyond all suffering. And insofar as you are beyond all suffering, forgiveness will be the natural way of the world with you. It, forgiveness will be so natural, you won't ever feel like holding a grudge because you don't ever feel like anybody's really a problem. You can love others. It would be natural to love others. You know, when a child spills milk on the floor, her mother almost instantly forgives the child. Not always. Sometimes she gets a bit mad. But a good mother would instantly forgive the child because she's beyond the point of the milk harming her. You know, it's not a big deal to her. So she can just clean up the milk and clean up the child. And she loves the child, even in the midst of his wrongdoing. He could poop himself and mess up the whole house. And the mother will just pick him up and clean him and then put him back on her lap. In no moment does the mother feel anger because she doesn't feel oppressed by the child. You know? So even when the child is being oppressive, she still loves the child. She still forgives the child. She still play with the child afterwards. She is able to love her child, even if in that moment, the child is acting a bit like the enemy. <laughs> And mothers in the room might testify. So if you are currently being oppressed, if you feel that oppression, and I'm going to argue that you can only feel that if you're a body and a mind, then you can't forgive. But if you don't feel that oppression, even while it's happening on the level of the body and mind, if you take a stand in spirit, then um, it's easy to forgive. Forgiveness is natural. And you'll notice in the Chandi, just to kind of bring some Tantra into the space, it says that mother, ya Krishna metad, it says in the Chandi that mother is consciousness. She abides as consciousness, meaning she's not the body. She's not the mind. She's something far deeper. She's Purusha. She's pure spirit. Then in another part of the Chandi, it says something very beautiful. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu. She abides in the form of forgiveness. Shama is the word for forgiveness. Shama. She is forgiveness. Notice that she is consciousness and she's forgiveness. Because in consciousness, inherent in it is um, freedom from all suffering, freedom from all oppression. And insofar as you're abiding in that, beyond all suffering and oppression, you don't have oppressors or enemies. And as such, it becomes very natural to forgive those even when they are seemingly, quote unquote, oppressing the mind and body. Do you see? I think that's kind of the logic of today's lecture. And I just wanted to put it up front. Now let's kind of flesh that statement out a little bit, shall we? So the Christ did not suffer. Now he was just quoting Psalms. He was just singing. 
He was singing to the Lord. And it's not just that he forgave his enemies, right? It was not just that he was able to say to them, almost like to their face. It wasn't just that he was able to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as a mother would to a child. What could be more motherly than that? You know, Swami Vekranda in his Long Island, uh, thousand, sorry, Long Island, <laughs> Thousand Islands Park talks, he would say, one drop of mother has become Krishna. One drop became Buddha. One drop became Christ. So Swami Vekranda is saying that the Christ, he is the force of, of Divine Mother Kali embodied in its highest manifestation. So where else do you see such a motherly heart as this when he says, you know, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just like a baby who makes a mess in the kitchen, who like poops himself and sullies his clothes. It's not their fault. They can't help but do that. They're babies. They don't know any better. You know, <laughs> it's such a motherly thing to say that forgive them, father. They know not what they do. Father's coming with the belt. The mother interposes and says, wait, 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 wait. This is a baby. This is a child. What does he know? Forgive them. He's able to forgive them and love them just like a mother would. And not only that, my third piece of advice, I mean, uh, evidence here for the fact that he did not suffer. Remember, that's the point I'm trying to make, that Christ did not suffer. So the point that the, the, the evidence that the people who say he did suffer, the evidence that they have is that lama lama sabaktani, ilahi ilahi lama sabaktani. And I'm saying, no, that's not actually a cry for help as much as it is quoting scripture, which you could only do if you're in like a relaxed, spacious kind of spiritual place. But secondly, him forgiving his enemies. That to me is a really big sign that he was not being oppressed at the time. That he actually was kind of free enough and peaceful enough and joyful enough to feel love. You know, where there is fear, there is no love. Where there is hatred, there is no love. You can verify this in your own life. And the Christ, by the way, is also a man. He's not just God. He's also a man. And insofar as, as he's a man, the things that are true for men should be true for him. And if it's true for you that love and hate can't coexist in your heart, that fear and forgiveness can't coexist in your heart, the very fact that you see the Christ forgiving means there was no fear or hate there. Okay, that's my second argument. My third argument, and this is perhaps the most important, he was straight up lecturing while on the cross. Can you imagine what a boss move that is? He's like teaching. He's on the cross and he's giving lectures to people. I mean, his mother is crying and he's consoling her. You know, he's like saying, Ma, relax. That's your son too. And that's your daughter. You know, what a high souled ennobling statement to say that I'm not your son, mother, because I'm not the body. You gave birth to a body, but I'm not a body. I'm spirit. And me, the spirit that I am, is the same spirit that is in all my neighbors. I, after all, can love my neighbor as literally myself. Vedantists in the room will be delighted by that statement. You know, we'll justify it in the light of Vedanta in a little bit. But because you know, he's able to keep that vision intact, even in the midst of great suffering, I think either it's a testament to how strong that vision is, or and, and or it's also a testament to how much he wasn't in pain. At the time, he wasn't suffering. He was relaxed and spacious enough to give lectures. Okay, now I have actually um, heard really great stories and seen cases in my own life that was like this. So there was a sadhu who had just come back from a surgery. He had gotten some kind of debilitating, crippling surgery. Now, that day, he was obviously in a lot of pain. He was wincing. Oh, by the way, today I want to make a little bit of a distinction between pain and suffering. But anyway, he was obviously in a lot of physical pain. He was like wincing and there was like a sheen on his face because he was sweating. You could see like beads of perspiration on his upper lip just because he was enduring so much pain. Now, you know what he did after the surgery? He straight up gave his Vedanta class. It was like an hour or two hours or something. He's giving his class and every now and then he would wince. And there was sweat on his face. You could see he was, he was enduring. He was forbearing. He was, I guess the Latin word suffering means to forbear. It doesn't really have the connotation that we do of being like, I resist this. You know? 
by the way, maybe I should have defined suffering at the start of the lecture. <laughs> this is maybe not the best time to define it, given that I just kind of assumed that you knew what it meant. But suffering in Latin means forbearance, though the connotation that I've been using thus far is the popular connotation of rejecting something as unpleasant or unacceptable or offensive, basically rejecting the moment. Suffering is anytime we say what's happening now should not be happening now. And it's quite different from pain, which can be accepted and experienced not as suffering, but as enlivenment. Anyway, refer to the Makali's bowl of blood lecture and all of that. We have had, we've had that talk, that talk. So I'm just kind of riding on that assumption. So um, that's why I'm not really going into what suffering is exactly and how it's different from pain. I'm just going to rely that you have that knowledge. Now, let's just, for now, make that distinction and say, this man was obviously in pain, but he wasn't in suffering. One, because he wasn't complaining about it. Two, because it didn't deter him from doing what he would otherwise have done that day, giving his lecture. So here's this man who is in the, in the grip of pain, doing what the Christ was doing, giving a lecture for the good of humanity. Interestingly, someone then said to him, Maharaj, he was in great pain, obviously, visibly. So a student said, Maharaj, please rest. No, please just take this day off. Like, don't teach this class. You just got back from the surgery. Rest. And you know, he immediately turned to him and his face was like, what? He said, I, he made some kind of great Vedantic statement in Hindi. I am the self. Upon my back, innumerable worlds are birthed and destroyed. What is this but a scratch or something crazy like that? He had the power of endurance. Why? Because and by his own admission, he was, a take, he was taking a stand in the self, in the spirit, and not in the body and mind. And by the way, I'm going to qualify all of this in a little bit. I know some people might be coming to this lecture who maybe have not heard any Vedantic ideas and they're not yet able to discern what spirit is apart from the body and mind. And we'll come to it. We'll come to it. But just for now, for those of you who have been studying Vedanta, this is quite clear as to what's happening here in this case. There's a man, he's in great suffering and he's teaching his class because he doesn't feel that suffering. Why? Because he doesn't feel like a body. He doesn't feel like a mind. He takes a stand in the spirit and he said that in response to someone who told him to rest. Now, isn't this a wonderful parallel? Here's a sadhu giving a talk um, in the midst of pain. The Christ in the midst of pain is giving a lecture selflessly. You know, <laughs> I think that's beautiful. Another instance. There's so many, all these great sadhus who I'm just trying to think of like the, 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 the nicest one. Okay, maybe this one. I, let's go back to the Buddha. So legendarily, the Buddha's last day was spent in giving a private, like some guy had come to see him and his um, disciple and uh, confidant Ananda had turned the man away on account of the Buddha's illness. You see, the Buddha had eaten some poison food. He had had something bad to eat and he was now slowly dying in excruciating stomach pain, you know? Um, and so this guy comes looking for the Buddha to get his lesson, just a nobody. And Ananda turns him away. Look, don't you understand our master, Tathagata? He's suffering. He's in bed right now, um, dying. This is not the time for a lecture. So Ananda sends the man away. Now the Buddha, he came to hear about this. And he said, what are you doing, Ananda? Bring the man in. You see, selfless. He wasn't thinking about his own suffering. So the man came in and the Buddha gave a lecture, one of his finest. You know, in that lecture, he says, everything comes, everything passes away. Be a lamp unto yourself. Beautiful lecture. The, one of the deepest teachings of the Buddha. Learn from the self, from the pure mind. Everything decays. Remember that everything comes and goes. 
again, you get the instance of an avatar giving a lecture in the midst of pain. Now, Sri Ramakrishna, I think his case is very interesting. So it's easy to study the life of the Christ and the life of the Buddha when you meet certain sadhus. But when you meet Sri Ramakrishna, you see that life exemplified so beautifully. So many scenes from the life of the Christ is eerily replayed in the Leela of Sri Ramakrishna. And one such scene is Sri Ramakrishna's cancer. So we know this 19th century godman came down with throat cancer. And much like the Christ, the alleged reason for his throat cancer was taking on the karma of his disciples. So to cleanse the world of its adharma, of its sin, I suppose, he took on suffering willingly. So there he is in the midst of throat cancer. Now he's a yogi with great yogic ability. At a certain point, you know, there are siddhis. He never demonstrated them except in two rare occasions, but two or three rare occasions. But this time he could have very well used his siddhis to heal himself right? He could have simply healed his throat cancer with the power of yoga alone. And someone suggested to him that he do just that. And he responded with indignation. What? Bring the mind down to the level of this body, the mind that I've surrendered up to the mother. Now he's speaking as a dualist, not as a non-dualist. He's not speaking in any Vedantic sense here. He's speaking just as a devotee of God. My mind belongs to God. It's not to be used to heal the body. But if you really look at what he's saying, he's saying, I don't have to heal the body because my mind is not on this plane. It's currently abiding with the divine, meaning with spirit. My mind has taken a stand in the mother, which is like saying it's taken a stand in the self. And as such, it doesn't feel this as suffering, not even enough to cure it. Isn't that so badass? Shramakrishna refuses to cure his throat cancer, though he certainly could, um, because he didn't feel it as suffering and he felt it as necessary for the sake of his disciples. Now, there was an instance in which he winced or something. He, he actually like said, ah, it hurts, it hurts or something like that, you know? And Hari Maharaj, who would later become Swami Turiyananda, who himself was an incredibly austere kind of monk who didn't even use anesthetics for his surgeries. Don't try that at home. And he didn't do it like, in samadhi or anything. He was fully awake, fully alert, but he was able to endure very painful lancing of boils and stuff like that. Painful surgeries without any anesthetics because like the Christ, he was taking a stand in the cell. You know, <laughs> there's actually also, again, don't try this at home, a crazy story. It, it, it's a thrilling story of Swami Turiyananda, just to give you some background. He, um, in his later years, was going on a pilgrimage, I think to Benares or something. And on the way there, you know, the pilgrims, they stop and they light fires and they sit around a campfire and talk. And different pilgrims from different sects and denominations, they all kind of go on this pilgrimage together. So it just happens, it just so happens that they come together and they exchange ideas and they talk. So Swami Turiyananda, in one such occasion, was giving a discourse on Vedanta. I'm not the body, I'm not the self. So perhaps a dualist or some monk in another order or just some devotee said to him, oh yeah, really? Then prove it. If you're truly not the body, then you should not be, uh, you should not have any hesitation now to put your hand into this fire. And Swami Turiyananda thrillingly apparently stood up and he's not in like samadhi or any ecstasy like that. He's in a regular state of mind. He stood up and he, he said something like, gladly. And he strode towards the fire without any hesitation. And he chucked his hand into the fire. And, and you know, his disciple, I think an American disciple had to jump up and grab him and like pull him back. And everyone was like freaking out. <laughs> and he, okay, this is the thrilling part. He apparently was laughing the whole time. This guy put his hand straight into the fire and burnt like black. And he's like laughing the whole time. It's maddening. It's like such a Mahakali story. Anyway, this Swami Turinanda, who was a young boy at the time, Hari Maharaj, Hari, said to Sri Ramakrishna, so cheeky, you know, remember Sri Ramakrishna is saying, it hurts, it hurts. Cheekily, you know what he says? Oh, you say you're in pain, but I see that you are in great bliss. 
Hari Maharaj called Sri Ramakrishna out on his bluff. Can you imagine the audacity? Your guru, who you believe to be the incarnation of God, God incarnate, is saying, I'm in pain. And you, a young boy disciple, says, you know, contradicts him and says, no, I, you saying you're in pain. I don't believe you. Invalidating, they call it in today's kind of social media environment. He invalidated Sri Ramakrishna's suffering. And Sri Ramakrishna apparently laughed out loud. Apparently he smiled. And you know what he said? He said, the rascal, he's caught me out. Or you rascal, you found me out or something like that. The idea is he's putting on this show of suffering because he's very childlike. Sri Ramakrishna is like to be baby, you know, he's very childlike. But when called to task, suddenly at the turn of a dime, he changed his face. He was smiling and he's like, yeah, you're right. Just kidding. Isn't that crazy? The idea that like Sri Ramakrishna is like putting on this leela, putting on this show of suffering. Now, of course, this view is a bit more at home with like Swami Ramakrishna Nanda and a little less at home with Sarada Nanda Maharaj and uh, Vivekananda Maharaj. So you'll notice in the direct disciples, there's like a spectrum. Those who saw him more as a God and those who saw him more as a man. As a man, he clearly suffered. As a God, he was beyond all suffering. And he was always taking a stand in the divine. So you could say he wasn't suffering, depending. I'm definitely now taking a Ramakrishnananda kind of stand here. Okay, so um, another instance. So Sri Ramakrishna, towards the end of his life, remember, he's in the midst of throat cancer. And at that time, there was no like, what do you call it? Um, chemo. There was no real help for it. They were just using kind of homeopathic, Ayurvedic remedies. Of course, they had the finest physicians at the time who you know would also become devotees in their own right. But they didn't have like, palliative care like we do. We have some really good painkillers and all sorts of things. But back then, it was just excruciating pain. There's like an open sore in your throat. And, you know, you're in crippling, debilitating pain. So you'd imagine that he would have spent these final few days, agonized as they were, in solitude, quietly, keeping to himself, resting. But no, he was perhaps the most active in those years. He moved to Calcutta from Dakshineshwar, from like a relatively sleepy part of the world. He moved to a bustling kind of city where most of his disciples were. So he moved to the heart of things, the thick of things. He moved to Calcutta and there he gave constant interviews with anybody and everybody. Some of them were like, as in his own words, just random devotees who wouldn't amount to very much. You know, he would say... A lot of people gather here and he spoke kind of somewhat disparagingly about some of them. Like these are just like whatever devotees. There are some great devotees here and also some whatever devotees. But be that as it may, he was just as forthcoming with the whatever devotees as he would be with the great devotees. He would spend all day long training them. He complained here and there. He was like, oh, mother, please give Kedar and Girish and, you know, all those households and give them some strength so they could prepare the devotees so that I can just liberate them with a single word. Like, sure. But he also, remember, throughout all of this, was lecturing, talking, transmitting spirituality, often going into samadhi, demonstrating spirituality. In the midst of his throat cancer on Kalpataru Day, which is the 1st of January, 1886, he apparently um, just liberally gave spiritual experiences to anyone and everybody who could take it. It was crazy. A lot of householder disciples just suddenly received ecstasy and, you know... <laughs> So in the midst of his suffering, so you have another example, actually, of someone who in the midst of their suffering is still actively serving and helping and lecturing. And that's probably because they don't suffer the way that we suffer. They're taking a stand in the spirit. They're in some ways beyond suffering. Now, insofar as we're talking about forgiving one's enemies, the Buddha harbored no malice towards the person who poisoned him, who gave him bad food to eat. Sri Ramakrishna harbored no malice towards anybody. Once he was even kicked you know, beaten up. He was sitting and meditating. He was in Samadhi alone in a room. And there was a priest 
who was the family priest of one Mathur Babu. Now, Mathur Babu was like Sri Ramakrishna's patron. And uh, the family priest was very jealous that Mathur Babu was like lavishing Sri Ramakrishna with gifts. So this priest, you know, kind of superstitious Orthodox Brahmin, he thought that Sri Ramakrishna had used some kind of spell, some kind of black magic, like a charm, and stolen away Mathur's mind and will. So he was intent to learn what the spell was, maybe. So one day, this priest, kind of a crook, you know, he came into the room and he saw that Sri Ramakrishna was alone. Remember, Sri Ramakrishna is like a child. If you leave him unattended, he could fall and chip his teeth and break his arm and all of that, you know? So if he's all alone, he can't protect himself. He's like kind of, you know, not able to defend himself. He's just in a state of spiritual joy like that, kind of turning the other cheek all the time. So you know what happened is this, this man, he comes in, this crook of a priest, he comes in, he says... What spell did you use? Huh? How did you catch Mathur Babu's mind? How did you charm him? Tell me. And Sri Ramakrishna, remember, he's in ecstasy, right? He's in Samadhi. So he's maybe coming down from Samadhi at this time. So he's not actually able to say anything. You'll recall from studying the life of Sri Ramakrishna that he struggled to speak in Samadhi. You know, he couldn't say anything. So even if he wanted to tell him something, he couldn't. He was actually unable to. And what ended up happening was this crook of a priest said, oh, you won't tell me, huh? Fine. And then started to stomp on him with boots. So this priest is wearing like heavy boots and he's like stomping on Sri Ramakrishna. Now, if Mathur Babu came to know about this, if Sri Ramakrishna had told anybody about this, uh, Mathur Babu would unhesitatingly have the priest killed. He's killed men before, apparently. So Mathur Babu would unhesitatingly kill the priest. Real repercussions could come. But Sri Ramakrishna didn't say anything to anybody until much later. He quietly said it to a few disciples and came to be known that this happened. But Sri Ramakrishna himself harbored no malice. He forgave him instantly. He was like, what could he do? He was just acting on what knowledge he had. So you saw in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, oppression, but immediate forgiveness because that oppression was not to Sri Ramakrishna oppressive. It's a very important point that I hope to make today. Now, not even on the level of Sri Ramakrishna, if you come down a few notches, you can take an, an ordinary saint. Now, what Sri Ramakrishna is, who knows? What Christ is, what Buddha is, who knows? It's one of the greatest mysteries of spiritual life. Are they avatars? We can say that, but do we even know what that means? right? We don't know what they are. Avatars or saints or holy men or heck, mad people. Who knows what these guys are, right? But let's take the case of maybe a more like grounded saint, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Not an avatar. You wouldn't call him like an avatar in the case of Krishna or Buddha. Now, Nisargadatta Maharaj, the great non-dual master um, in Mumbai, right? Mumbai. Now he, yeah, he was in the slums of Dharavi in Mumbai. Now he um, also got throat cancer and apparently he used to joke about it. He used to say, oh yeah, this is just my karma for selling so many contraband cigarettes. You see, he was a cigarette salesman. <laughs> so the fact that he, he could make light of his suffering, that he could joke about his suffering, this is all very Christ-like in the sense that they suffered nobly and they suffered beautifully. Okay, so now let's return to our narrative, uh, narrative about the Christ. So we've given a few kind of parallel stories from the life of the Buddha, Sri Ramakrishna, some other saints in India. Um, I could talk about my grandfather, but if I start, I won't stop. And then also, maybe you could even say Socrates. He harbored no malice to the Athenian authorities that were at the time. Um, and also, you know, what's interesting is that in the case of Sri Ramakrishna, maybe he could heal his body. He just wouldn't. He just didn't feel the need to. Similarly, the Christ could have like left. He was tipped off way in advance. He could have walked out of that garden, but no, he chose to just go on with the play of events. And so too, Socrates had the opportunity to leave. He was tipped off. And I think he was in prison. I think, um, Plato's apology takes place in prison and people are trying to cajole him to like kind of take a sideways. Remember, his, his friends were all rich kind of aristocrats, much like Sri Ramakrishna's friends. They were all like well-to-do, well-placed people. So they could have snuck him out if he had only let them. 
But Socrates wouldn't let them. He was fine with dying. And so you see this beautiful painting. I forget who it's by. I should have I should have done a little more research before this lecture. But there's this beautiful painting where Socrates is like basically laughing and teaching and all around him, people are like crying. You know, Plato, he's a conspicuously absent. Apparently Plato was not in the room that day. Plato is to Socrates, I guess what M is like to Sri Ramakrishna. Apparently Plato would just kind of record things down and stuff like that. So anyway, you see the scene of all the disciples of Socrates, these young boys all crying because they were the, identified to the body and mind, with the body and mind. So they didn't understand why Socrates was so glib about all of this. He was just laughing and he too was teaching right before he drank the hemlock and probably during the hemlock's activity. So look, this is not unique to the Christ. It's there in any spiritual person, be they an avatar, an incarnation of God or um, any saint, garden variety saint, dare I even call them that. <laughs> so they, they all demonstrate this ability to, to endure suffering because it's not really suffering to them. So let's explain now how that can be so. Now let's go to the practical part of the lecture. So in the final few moments together, in closing, I'd like to offer four ways, you know, to never suffer again. Some of them work immediately. Others work progressively through practice. Arguably, all of them will take some practice, but at least in principle, one or two of them can work immediately. Now, these four ways are the, as you know, four yogas. And I'd like to kind of make references to the Christ uh, and the way he perhaps phrased some of these. It's not one-to-one, of course, but I think there are like parallels. So the four yogas, yoga, by the way, means a few things. In one sense, yoga is a state. Yogas, chitta, vritti, nirodaha. Yoga is the complete cessation of all thoughts. So yoga refers to a certain event in which no cognitions are present and one abides in one's true nature as spirit. That's, I think, the most direct use of the word yoga. But short of that, yoga also means a school of Indian philosophy. So of the six orthodox schools of Hindu philosophy, yoga is one. Yoga. It's very closely related to Sankhya, but different in a few key areas, namely in the acceptance of God as the world teacher, whereas Sankhya has no such theism. Anyway, the third way in which to use yoga is the way I hope to use the word now. It just means means or technique or practice, a way. So yoga, same as like Tao. It's like the way and it's also the goal. Okay, and there are four types of yogas. There's Raja Yoga, the yoga of meditation. There is Karma Yoga, the yoga of selfless service. There is Bhakti Yoga, the yoga of devotion and prayer and self-surrender. And there is Jnana Yoga, the yoga of philosophy and inquiry into the true nature of the self. Okay, all these four yogas are um, practices, practices that we can each of us start embodying and and putting into, into use to get to the state, at least in some way, that the Christ lived in. So we could, through... I mean, um, at least principally, we could, through some practice, achieve similar levels of calm, peaceful surrender. And we could, to the greatest degree possible, like the Christ, endure suffering nobly. So insofar as I'm making the case that the Christ did not suffer, I'd like to say that the teaching that the Christ offers us in this Passion of the Christ uh, scene is how to suffer nobly, how to deal with suffering. And you have to do the work now because the cross is coming for us all. So the next thing I want to say is uh, you might not be literally crucified or you might, right? All bets are off there. Who knows? Um, You might not be literally crucified, but you are certainly going to be crucified on the cross of old age, sickness, and death. 
You know, there will be great pain in your life. Don't pretend like there won't be. If you've ever seen an old person, you know it's a world of pain, my friend. It's coming. And maybe it's there for you now. Some of you might be listening to this lecture in the midst of pain. I do talk to a lot of people who are currently in the midst of pain, both physical and emotional. You know, so here's the thing. And we have to stress this over and over. You will lose loved ones. Many people in your life that you love will die long before they're supposed to die. Car accidents are a thing. Terrorist attacks are a thing. Don't forget any of these things. I don't mean to depress you, but I, I merely want to point out that these are very real crosses that people are crucified against every day. It doesn't do to simply shake your fist and say this shouldn't be so. It is so. Now what are you going to do about it? That's the kind of invitation of spiritual life. It is the case that the world is full of injustice. Five active wars is nothing, right? Like right now, there are like five active wars apparently, but like that's nothing. Like on every individual, on an individual scale, there are horrific injustices that are committed all throughout a person's life. And like I said before, it's all relative. So you could be living in like relative comfort and still be in the midst of great suffering. Whereas someone could be in poverty, like many of the sadhus that I've met and be fully satisfied and happy. So obviously suffering is very relative, but that you suffer is a given insofar as we're embodied. So as long as we have a body at the very least old age, sickness and death, but typically also loss of loved ones, loss of property, political injustice, all of that, all of that's a given in life. So given that, given that we will at some point or other be crucified on the cross in our own way, we all have our own cross to carry. Given that, how will we deal with it? Will we be like the bad thief or the good thief or like the Christ? How will we handle being crucified? And I'd like to say we should handle it like the Christ, but how? How can we get to the point where suffering is no suffering? How can we get to the point where we can forgive those who are inflicting that suffering upon us, recognizing that they are but children who know not better? How can we get to the point where even in the midst of suffering, we don't stop serving? We still do the thing that we most love to do. You know, how do we get to that point? Before I forget, there's also a great chapter in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna uh, called, in Swami Nikhilanandaji's translation, The Master and His Injured Arm or something like that. So if you have the gospel with you, the Katamrita, Sri Sri Ramakrishna Katamrita, read that chapter after this, if you can. It's such a cute chapter because he's like crying about his broken arm, but then he actually says, my tears have nothing to do with my arm. I'm not actually crying because of physical pain. I think that's eerie and I don't really want to get into it because it's particularly subtle and perhaps too subtle for my very limited intellect. So I'm just going to leave that alone, but reference it. It's a very beautiful scene that happens. It's called um, Sri Ramakrishna and his injured arm or something. It's right after M at Dakshineshwar, I think. I forget. I'm just saying it off memory, so I could be wrong here. But Sri Ramakrishna and his injured arm. It happens within the first two pages of that chapter, you know, because he broke his arm, apparently. He went into Samadhi, he fell by the railing and broke his arm. And now he's making, apparently he's making a big deal about it. Like a child, he's saying, will I ever be better again? Mother, why did you do this to me? What have I ever done? Why did you harm me like this? Like that, you know, he's... You will do what you want. Like he's talking to the mother. He seems to be complaining like a child on his mother, mother's lap. Complain, very much like Ilahi, Ilahi Lama Sabakthani. But then later he cries and he says like, I'm not really crying about this hand. And he laughs too. There's a scene where they put him on the floor. The doctor has arrived. Yeah, he's just complaining for like, just for fun. Really for fun because they put him on the floor. The doctor like puts him on the ground to look at him or something. And then everyone around is gathered and he sings a song. Again, he breaks into song. And he sings a song about like gopis gathering around Krishna and fussing over Krishna. And then everybody laughs. Thank you, Ashishji. Thank you so much. Everybody laughs, you know? So he's singing this song and everyone's laughing and he's in the midst of pain. And by the way, dislocating an arm is quite painful. Remember back in that day, they don't have like, I don't know, 
ibuprofen or something. Can I even say that? Is that, will, will YouTube tell me that like I'm copyright infringing if I say company names like that? I don't know. Um, but like, what do you call it? That kind of aspirin? No, is that a company name or what? I forget. I, I can't distinguish anymore the company names versus the actual name of the drug, like actually. Yeah, there's like companies, right? Like ibuprofen, Motrin, like stuff like that. But there's like the actual name of the drug. Anyway. Okay, good. So thank you, Tara. But like, okay, okay, good. But like, you know, there wasn't that stuff back in the day. It's not like you could just pop a palliative or painkiller. Thank you. You couldn't do that back then, you know? So he was in pain, quite a considerable amount of pain. And yet, and he complained a bit. And yet he's like laughing and he's like singing. And then, you know, um, he's making jokes with the doctor whose name just happens to be Madhusudan or something like that. Uh, Madhusudan is the name of Krishna. And he's like, look, you're living up to your name or something. He makes a joke, a joke about his name. And then Madhusudan says like, yes, I'm just laboring under the wor- w- w- uh, uh, weight of my name. And he says, is a name so small a thing? Like there's this exchange, this humorous exchange that he's having with the doctor that's treating him. He's like singing and laughing with his disciples. That's what I imagine that final moment of the cross must have been like. Horrible suffering, certainly. And yet teaching, yet singing, quoting Psalms, quoting scripture, thinking about God. You know, Swami Vekranda doubted Sri Ramakrishna was an avatar. Rightly so. No one should accept this thing so simply. Um, but, you know, to be fair, I've believed in little crazier things in my life than, than the idea that God could have come down as a person. I've certainly believed stupider things, right? So why not this? Why don't I just believe that it does happen? That You know, childlike faith is wonderful too. But Swami Vekranda wasn't like that. He didn't have the childlike faith that maybe some of us are predisposed to. He was, you know, rational and intellectual, really embodying the Western spirit. So he was like, I don't know about this whole avatar thing. And he could accept Sri Ramakrishna as a great spiritual master and a guru, but an avatar, incarnation of God, that was a little much. And you can imagine the disciples of the Christ probably felt the same way. Like, this is truly a great man. I've witnessed miracles. I see his love. He is truly spirituality embodied, but an avatar, you know, and these were Jews. They were not ready to accept that, you know, it was like just a lot for them to accept that this person was a god. So too with the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. Anyway, um, towards the end of Sri Ramakrishna's life, Swami Vekranda is in the room and he thinks to himself, okay, something like this. He thinks to himself, Master is in great pain right now. If now he can claim to be the avatar, only then will I believe him. I'll believe him if now he can say it. Now, there's something very important about Swamiji's question here. I'm going to get to the four yogas in a bit, but just before I forget, I want to say this. Something very important to the way Swamiji is thinking about this. Because if Sri Ramakrishna was the avatar, you would say, why would he be suffering? Why would the avatar suffer? The avatar is God. So why would God incarnate only to be crucified? Right? Like someone made a joke. If God comes back, he won't come back in the West because the Yelp reviews are really bad for incarnating in the West. <laughs> The last time he stayed here, he got crucified. So he's like, all right, I'm just going to stick to India from now on. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> the thing about India is even if you weren't God, people would treat you like God. So I think if God incarnated, he's got a cushy stay in India. <laughs> so anyway, um, why would God come down and be crucified? Or why would God not like do something about it? In other words, why would God suffer at all? Why would God be debilitated by sickness like the rest of us? It's very difficult to accept that God can be a man, that man can be a God. So this whole incarnation avatar business should puzzle you, rightly so. I'm, I'm frightened if it doesn't. Or either I'm frightened if it doesn't or really impressed. Either you're just at like such a high state of your spiritual life or you're a raving lunatic. Either you're a fool or enlightened, you know, to be able to just accept that God does this. But um, apparently God does. And Swami Vivekananda was like, 
Uh, if he can say that now, if he can affirm that right now he's God, then and only then I'll, I'll accept him. And Sri Ramakrishna reads his thoughts, which, you know, any yogi can do. This is, I mean, not any yogi, but it's not, it's not only God can read your thoughts. Like lots of great yogis do that who don't have to be God. So he intuited his thoughts and he was like, do you, you, do you doubt it even now, my boy? He who was here as Rama, he who was here as Krishna is now here as Ramakrishna. You know, like that. So then Swami Vivekananda was like, whoa. But notice the thing about it, and, but there's another statement. I think that statement is very important, but not according to your Vedanta. It's kind of like Emperor Palpatine saying, but not from a Jedi. <laughs> like, like you can learn this, but not from a Jedi. Similarly, this is true. Uh, he was Rama, he was Krishna, is now here as Ramakrishna, but not according to your Vedanta. He's saying it's not, and he never thought it was important for people to consider him as an avatar. Often, over and over, he would say, it's not important, it's not important. Like, that you believe in God is important. That you believe he is God, no, no. That's like wholly beside the point. And that's kind of interesting too, right? That Sri Ramakrishna made his avatarhood wholly beside the point. It was your spirituality. The, the Christ came to make you the Christ in some sense, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So fucking walk the way, right? <laughs> Don't make YouTube videos calling yourself an apologist and slagging people for talking about the Christ in a way that's slightly different from what your pastor indoctrinated you with. Walk the way! Anyway, so <laughs> that's my rant. <laughs> so now let's go back to the Christ. He probably had four yogas and Sri Ramakrishna, he taught this four yogas. And these four yogas probably brought him to a place where in the midst of suffering, he was able to say, yes, I am God and God suffers. God as a man suffers. And I, as a man, as God, don't experience that suffering as oppressive. I feel pain, but I'm not suffering. I might feel grief, but I'm not suffering. How is that possible? In a few ways. One, and this is perhaps the practical, I guess you could say, takeaway. Like, how can we learn to forgive our enemies? How can we learn to suffer like the Christ? First one, Raja Yoga. So this is the practice of taking back control of your attention and your concentration and your mind's propensity to fixate on things. So we, all of us, can only really think of one thought at a time. I mean, think of it. If you carefully attend to the flow of cognitions as they come and go, you'll notice, even though they're going really quickly and your mind feels busy, really at any given time, you're really only focusing on any one thing. The mind's capacity is only to really focus on one thing at a time. Now, when we say we're multitasking, actually what we're doing is we're not multitasking. We're just switching very quickly from one task to another in rapid succession. So similarly, when your mind feels busy, it's not that you're focusing on many thoughts as well, at once. If you calmly pay attention, you'll notice actually what's going on. What's more the case is that you're just having a rapid succession of thoughts. They're coming and going so quickly. But the principle is true. At any given time, you can only really focus on one thing. Now, the Raja Yogi knows that their attention is their most valuable faculty. Where attention goes, energy flows. Our entire like, advertising media you know, is a billion-dollar industry capitalizing attention, and they're trying to capture attention because attention is so valuable. It's way more valuable. It's like an advertising company. I think Westerford could tell you he studied in the ranks of the enemy. No, I'm kidding. There are no enemies. <laughs> but <laughs> forgive them, father. <laughs> but Westerford will tell you, you know, um, that advertising, marketing, attention is so valuable that they're willing to pay billions of dollars for a minute of it. I mean, heck, a minute? No, like 12 seconds, three seconds of your attention. They'll pay billions of dollars to get three seconds of your attention. Doesn't that tell you something about how valuable attention is? Just think about it. Like billions of dollars are spent 
for three seconds of your time. And what do you do? You give away that time easily without any valuation whatsoever. You're giving away billions of dollars, right? Just by not being able to control where your mind goes and when it goes there. So most of us don't have the power to control the mind. It goes where advertising tells us to go. It goes where conditioning tells us to go. It goes where biology tells us to go. You know, so both biological and social, so social conditioning train the mind in certain ways. And we can't do anything about it, supposedly. We can't think about what we want to think when we want to think about it. And the proof is in the pudding. If, you know, after this lecture, I invite you to go and sit for an hour in meditation and think of nothing else but your favorite form of God. Just think of the Christ in your heart. Thinking of nothing else but the Christ, you'll see very quickly that the mind is not so obedient. <laughs> it will think about like tomorrow and, you know, in my case, what's next week's lecture? Like, I'll think about other stuff. That's not God, not the Christ. So then you'll notice we don't really have control of the mind. The mind just goes where it will. But I invite you to use your powers of imagination. Just imagine what would it be like in your life if you had perfect control of the mind? Like what would it be like to move about the world in full control of where and when your attention goes? Like where your attention goes and when it goes there. No, what would it be like to live life with the power to think about what you want when you want it and the power to stop thinking about what you didn't want to think about when you didn't want to think about it? Can you imagine what that would be like? Now, I'm sure you've all had um, a situation in your life that was painful or maybe grief inducing. Like maybe you had a toothache and you know, if you have a toothache, it's very annoying. But if you do an activity that wholly consumes your attention, you might actually forget all about the toothache. Do you know? How that feeling, like the, the pain of the toothache actually fades. At least it, it becomes milder or it goes away altogether when you're absorbed in something. Is this true or not? Have you not had this happen to you? And it doesn't just have to be physical pain. It could be grief. Maybe you lost a loved one. And so grief, by the way, like pain, this is also something important. Grief like pain comes and goes in waves. There are crests and there are troughs. So you'll notice that when you're experiencing grief and it's just kind of ebbing and flowing within you, tantrikas love grief because it's so beautiful and dynamic. But let's say you're experiencing grief, right? Now, if you do an activity, like say hatha yoga, I remember once I had my heart horribly broken and I, I went to practice hatha yoga. And I remember before I walked into the, the, the practice, I was like, so sad. And then in the practice, I didn't think about it because the poses I was doing was very intricate. Like it involved, haha, flex, they were intricate poses. I do intricate poses. Anyway, so the poses were so intricate um, that it consumed my attention wholly. And I, I found that for that hour, for that hour and a half or whatever, I wasn't thinking about my heartbreak. She didn't once really, yeah, factor into that practice. But then afterwards, then I thought about it again. Then I was like, oh yeah, that happened. You know? <laughs> so it's like, if you're really involved and invested yeah emily's like did you even do sheer shasana bro that's like oh my god <laughs> did you do it at the center of the room because as we know only great masters can do sheer shasana like it's no it's funny because headstand is particularly not that difficult but it looks kind of cool so people are like oh <laughs> but isn't that interesting that like once um you, you could say, consider like when you have your heart broken, like you go and practice yoga and you forget about it. And then if you have pain in the tooth and you like paint or do your work or like just do whatever it is that, you know, captures your attention, right? It's on Instagram, don't you? If you do anything at all in this world that like fully captures your attention and, and keeps you there for any period of time, the pain will go away. The grief will go away. You'll just be with what is. 
Um, so notice, once you're able to kind of take back control of your attention, you can just, with the power of Raja Yoga, the yoga of meditation, pull attention away from that which you don't want to factor into your experience and divert it to that which you do. Ideally, God. So a great Raja Yogi will just take attention away from that which is fleeting, transient, non-eternal, and direct it towards that which is eternal, which is fulfilling, which is deep. You know, so that's a very important point, that Raja Yoga, the practice of meditation, learning to kind of control the mind's flow, concentration, is itself like a superpower. Now, I would argue the Christ knew Raja Yoga. Why do I say that? I mean, there are like little things that he says here and there. For instance, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light, which to me sounds a lot like verses two and three from the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. If thine eye be single. I mean, he's talking about concentrating. Be one-pointed. The literal word that we get in yoga is ekagrata. So to have the mind be one-pointed. Ekagrata. If thine eye be single. It's, I think... I don't know if I'm reading into this. This could be too exegetical and too interpretive, but it just seems to me an obvious point. Obviously, because I'm a yogi, I'll read that out of that line. You might read something else, but it seems to me, obviously, if one can bring one's mind to a single point, God in the Christ language, or just any point, as Patanjali would argue, then your whole body shall be filled with light. Now, obviously, light is also a synonym for wisdom, which is exactly what the Yoga Sutra is about. You will get jnana, Brahma jnana, knowledge of the self, simply by bringing the mind to a single point and then dropping even that point. That's kind of the point, haha, pardon the pun, of the whole Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, to bring the mind to a single point. And it's no easy thing. It's a science. It's a science and it's an art and it takes constant application, but it can be done. It can be done by you, by me, by everybody, if we would but take the time to practice it daily. It's not going to happen in a day, you know, it will happen, but it will happen through constant application. Like if you never did Pincha Mayurasana, because we're now talking about yoga poses, if you've never done feathered peacock or something like scorpion pose, you've never done Pincha Mayurasana, then you might feel like you'll never do it. You'll see other people doing it. You'll say, they must be the prophet. They must be the Christ. They must be the messenger. They're special. I'm not. But if you just took the time to learn what they learned, you too would in a short manner of time gain pincha mayurasana soon you'll like almost like a gift the body will just go into a pose that you previously thought was impossible so if now it seems impossible to bring the mind to a single point because the mind is so busy then just like achieving a pose in hatha yoga through practice you can through practice of raja yoga eventually learn uh, to bring the mind to a single point and if you can do that my promise is you will uh, no longer be a victim of cultural conditioning social conditioning uh, biological conditioning you will no longer be drawn into pain with the same level of vulnerability as you might have if you hadn't had that mental control, that self-control. So the Christ arguably knew Raja Yoga insofar as he maybe directly referenced it, this practice of bringing the mind to a single point. But as we know, the Christ was not a yogi in the traditional sense of sitting in meditation all day. He was a bhakta. He was a devotee of God. So his yoga was the yoga of self-surrender, the yoga of deep, abiding love for the divine that he saw as his very own father, that he saw as the self of his self. My father and I are one. No, actually, I'll, I'll leave that for the jnana yoga portion. I got too excited about that statement. But everything that I do, my father who art in heaven does through me. I can of my own self do nothing. You know, love thy God with all thy heart and thy might. And, you know, like he, he's a lover, the Christ, as we often joked, if you go to a party, you know, you'd find the Buddha probably in the kitchen talking about jnana to a bunch of people, very ardently listening. Um, and you'd find the Christ probably on the couch with an acoustic guitar singing Wonderwall. You know, they were both avatars. You know, Sri Ramakrishna would obviously be in Samadhi dancing. You know, <laughs> he'd be on the dance floor. Sri Ramakrishna probably on the dance floor. 
you know, where would Krishna be? Well, he wouldn't even be at that party. He's out, you know, working on his business or something like that. <laughs> and Rama is on Instagram hoping Sita will text back. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, so, <laughs> so the Christ, he's like a bhakta, you know, he's a devotee of God. But that doesn't mean he does not achieve what the yogi achieves, which is one point in this. You see, the life lived his whole life, Christ lived his whole life for God, meaning his life had that single pointedness of the yogi. So though he wasn't practicing perhaps out of Patanjala Yoga Shastra, who knows, lost 12 years or whatever, I don't know. Um, yeah, Jesus is doing, you know, Mother Mary comes to me. <laughs> Come together <laughs> right now. You know? <laughs> You say you want to start a rev. You say you want a revolution. <laughs> Sorry, you're right, Chandraji. There's just so many um, wonderful lines that the Christ Himself would have said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And plus, because of you know, um, George Harrison was really into like Yogananda Giri and all that, and he was really like into Hare Krishna, Iska, and all that stuff. Anyway, so and they met Maharishi Mahesh, and obviously, right? <laughs> Someone once said. So they criticized the Beatles for being so ardently devoted to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and all. And I think the guy, uh, I forget who, maybe John Lennon or Paul, somebody said back in response, here's the thing, Max, I forget what his name was, Dr. Max something, he's not happy. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, he is a happy man. Like that was enough, That enough said, I think, that Paul felt he needed to respond. Anyway, so here's the thing, Raja Yoga, and bhakti yoga in some ways are the same because you're directing your entire vitality, not just physically, not just psychically, but emotionally, like everything that makes you you, the vitality of your being, you're directing that towards God. And so you do get that ekagrata. If your mind be, if your eye, meaning the inner vision, if your eye be single, your attention, if your attention be one pointed, then your whole body shall be filled with light, joy, wisdom, peace. All of that comes through bhakti. So the Christ is a bhakta par excellence, devoted. He's a true devotee. Now, not only that, he's also, um, because he's a true devotee, he also serves others as he would himself. So when he meets people, he unstintingly gives to them, you know, what, what he has. And he has infinite power. He's a storehouse of infinite power. But not because he was trying to start any religion. No, he was just trying to help people. I mean, in Matthew, we see him healing a cripple. And then he says to that cripple, go to the temple, go and make your sacrifices, go and thank your priest. He's trying to make Jews better Jews. Just like Swamiji said when he came to America that he was trying to make Christians better Christians. So Christ wasn't out to like convert anybody. I mean, because if he was, then he would have like asked that cripple to follow him, but he didn't. He healed the cripple in Matthew and he told the cripple to go to the temple. So he wasn't helping people arguably to start a religion or anything. He was helping people because it was his nature to do so because he saw people as his brothers and sisters, his children, um, and not really even his children, like his brothers and sisters. Such purity, service incarnate. Now he would just manifest loaves and bread and he would teach unstintingly, even when they abused him, he would teach and teach and teach. He spent his whole life teaching and educating and demonstrating the life and performing miracles and healing the sick and bringing sight back to the blind. He even worked on Shabbat days. You know, he did uh, there's a chair in New York that says it was devoted to Swami Vivekananda and it said to a saint who never rested or something like that. He was like that. He didn't even take Shabbat, Shabbat days off. He worked. He worked tirelessly for everybody, for all of his disciples, for everybody that he met. He brought Lazarus back to dead just because he was sad, you know, that Lazarus's sisters were crying and all that. So he's like lover's heart because of his bhakti, 
because of his devotion to God, he was a natural karma yogi. Now, karma yoga is the yoga of selfless service without expecting any reward or praise from your work, nor even fearing any consequences or blames. You're just doing the work that you feel called to do for its own sake. Could you imagine a greater state of flow than this? You know, if you're doing the work that you love, you will naturally have bhakti and raja. Why? Raja because of focus. If you do the work that you love, you'll be like one-pointed, you know? I love doing what I do. I just feel so present with it in a way that uh, I'm not as present with other things, you know? And I'm sure you two have that same feeling, whatever you do, that you love to do, when you're doing it, you're just there with it. So I would say this to me is therapy for whatever is going on in my life. I don't feel like, I remember kind of being here and giving lectures in the midst of, physical things like when that COVID time almost to a year, a year to the day now, last year was COVID. I did not feel that COVID at all, though it was like before the lecture, I was in bed like, oh my, what is this? And then after the lecture, I was like, during the lecture, COVID could not come near. There was like a, like a circle of fire and the guy was like over there. I was like, wait, I got to do this now. And then later it came. And I was like, oh, cool. But imagine the Christ, he's not taking breaks. He's just working all day long, doing the thing that is his Swadharma. It's his nature to teach. So he's just teaching. Tirelessly, he's teaching. So he's got that Raja Yoga focus. But he's also got the Bhakti Yoga kind of devotion because he loves what he does. And he sees other people literally as God. So he serves them as God. And so he feels that like outpouring of love the whole time he's doing it. That's the third thing. You've got Raja Yoga, learning to control your attention. If you can do that, you can to a large extent, avoid suffering. If you can have bhakti, then you could have tremendous surrender to God, knowing that what is happening is happening for the greatest good and is God's will, etc. I could say more here, but in the interest of time, I'll move on just so I can read the psalm to you in closing. Then there's, of course, karma yoga, which has elements of the previous two, but is, you know, not to be confused, it's its own thing. You could just, without any belief in God or without any yoga whatsoever, just do the thing that you feel most inspired to do, and that will give you tremendous relief from pain if you do it in the in, in, in the kind of sense of service and worship without expecting any outcomes. By the way, if you're expecting outcomes, you just won't be as present as you could have been if you forgot about those outcomes. You know? Okay, simple as that. Now finally, the one that's maybe closest to our space here on Mondays, Jnana Yoga, the yoga of philosophical inquiry into the true nature of the self. Now the Christ was a jnani in many ways. And perhaps you can do a whole different lecture on that. In fact, we did. Last year, I think we did a lecture called the non-duality of Jesus Christ. You know, and there we talked about my father and I art one. We talked about deny thyself as a kind of neti neti. So I won't go into that now. You can just like watch that lecture. Where it's a playlist of lectures on the Christ. So I think that's the first lecture in the playlist, the non-duality of Jesus Christ. There we did something like what Swami Prabhavanandaji did in his book, Sermon on the Mount, according to Vedanta. Not really, because I hadn't read the book at that time. Um, so I don't know to what extent... Um, it overlaps, but it's the same endeavor, at least. The principle is the same, which is try to compare Swami, uh, sorry, Vedanta, as taught by Sri Ramakrishna Swami Vekaranda, with the teachings of Jesus Christ. So in that lecture, we describe Christ as a yogi and also as a non-dualist, as a jnani. So I won't do that really here, but jnana yoga, the path of philosophy, if walked with sincerity, if we truly deny thyself, meaning if we practice bhakti, raja, karma, we have this certain level of purity, we're able to kind of say, I am not the body. 
deny thyself. And we'll say, am I really the body? Ask the question, am I really the body? And then you go on a process of kind of inquiry. How can I be the body when the body is an object in my experience? I, the subject, and always, always different from the object. When I see a car drive by, I never say I am the car. I always say I see a car. So similarly, in that same vein, if I feel a sensation, why do I say my body? Why not just say a body, a sensation that's coming and going just like the car? I do the same with my mind. I can experience thoughts. I can experience my identity. And as I keep doing this, eventually I realize I, I'm not the body. The body is an object in my, in my experience. I'm not the mind. The mind with all of its thoughts, with its idea of who it thinks it is, it too is just an experience in me. But what am I? It turns out at the end of the day through inquiry and through much meditation that I am a thing wholly apart from the body and mind. And whether I've known it or not, I've always been that. And I always will be that. I am spirit, spirit through and through, unmingled with physical matter. I am something quite transcendent to matter. This is at least the Sankian way of describing it. Then you go a little further and you investigate waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Well, I'm only on the cross one third of the time. In the other third, I'm dreaming. And in the other third, I'm in deep sleep. So whatever I'm suffering, I'm only really suffering it as a waking self. In dream, I suffer different things. And in deep sleep, there's no suffering whatsoever. There's no experience of waking and dream. Anyway, I'm just glossing. I'm like just speeding through the, these arguments. These are all very deep and profound inquiries in the tradition of Vedanta. Am I the body? Am I the mind? Am I any of the objects of my experience? Secondly, what am I? The waking self, the dreaming self, the deep sleep self, or something transcendent to all three? So these are all vivekas, these practices of discerning what I truly am and distinguishing it from that which I am not. Okay, this is all very important. Now, when you do that inquiry, at the end of that inquiry, you come to this conclusion. And the conclusion is, I am not the kind of thing that can be harmed. I am not the body. I am not the mind. And therefore, since all harm is only on the level of the body and mind, it does not apply to me. And once you take a stand in the self, once you start living as spirit from the point of view of the witness and not the body and mind, and it can be as simple for us now as to just remember that, you know, and remind ourselves of that in the midst of our suffering, that will in and of itself change our entire perspective on suffering. No, because you can try it even now. If there's some grief in your heart or some pain in your body, you can sit and you can start to attend to it and ask, am I sad or is sadness something I am experiencing? If I'm experiencing it, then it is the experienced and I am the experiencer. I am not it. I am the one to whom it comes and goes. Watch it rise. Watch it fade. Watch how these Pangs of grief come in waves. Just savor the raw, immediate sense of grief in the heart. Savor that kind of throbbing pain in the knee or wherever else in the body there might be pain. And just over and over, assert to yourself that you are something other than it. You're watching it calmly. How many things have come into your life? How many things have gone? This too shall pass. Just like that. That's what the jnani will do. Every cognition is subject to scrutiny. Am I this? Am I that? How could I be? I'm the one noticing it like that. So once you do this after a while, you'll get the sense of living from spirit. You'll be much less flappable, you know, very kind of settled, um, very calm and joyful. 
and intimate with life because you know nothing can harm you so everything can be explored and enjoyed like that so the christ obviously is a gyani through bhakti through karma through raja you eventually will also have what the gyani has through inquiry meaning you live as spirit and you live a life of devotion when you put all this together these four yogas you have a very workable practicable model that you yourself can right now put into practice to achieve that same state now my claim as we made in the beginning of the lecture is if you practice even a little bit your ability to forgive your enemies will become greater because you will no longer have so many enemies no one has ever seen samsara in a peaceful mind as one swami sarabhananda related to us you'll never see a horrible world if your mind is calm and peaceful you know and maybe we can ask why in the q and a i just want to finish yes so that's why i i noted noted so let me end it by reading you the psalm so finally coming full circle the christ had to have known all of these yogas he must have practiced them and he had very at the very least practiced bhakti the practice of surrendering to god so in some sense he was beyond suffering that's why i don't think he suffered at the cross well then what do we make of this argument that the camp suffering makes ilai ilahi lama sabakthani what's up with that well let's look at the psalm actually let's look at what he's saying He's obviously quoting something. Let me just go ahead and grab the psalm here and put it in the chat. So here it is. Oh my God, it's too big. Sorry. I'll just put it in the Discord, okay? The psalm is a little too big to put in the chat. So here in the Discord, you can see it. I'll read it out to you. It's Psalms 22. Now remember, these are songs in Hebrew, okay? So the psalms are part of the Old Testament. So they're a little older than the Christ. And they've been around for God knows how long. They're like maybe as old as time itself. They belong to... Uh, a group of individuals that lived in the Levant long before the foundation of the state, the Habiru people, perhaps, who wandered here and there. It's just a folk tradition. So remember, these are folk songs. And some scholars have even said these are songs not to yod he vav he the unpronounceable tetragrammaton, but these are songs to a tribal god named Yahweh. You know, so Yahweh might have very well been a sea god, a sky god, like just a kind of like a Baal or Asherah in some sense, right? So many scholars argue that these songs are not to God, God, capital G, but to like a, a regional local God. Now, anyway, to those people, it was God, God. So you can see the parallels between Vedic civilization because Vedic civilization is the same thing. You have all these hymns to like God, lowercase g, that later get appropriated into like mainstream Vedic religion with its transcendental ideas. And then it's now a hymn to God, capital G. So this is a psalm, meaning it's to be sung. I can't sing it for you because I don't know Hebrew. I'm just going to read you the King James translation, okay? So here's what it says. It opens with Elahi, Elahi, Lama Sabakthani. It opens with that. So the Christ is obviously, given his phrasing, directly referencing this psalm. He's obviously quoting it. And because, remember, these are songs, he's probably singing it. This is my claim. If psalms are music to be sung, they're folk songs, then Jesus Christ, the Jew, many people seem to forget that he was Jewish. Jesus Christ, the Jew, the Levantine par excellence, is just singing like Ram Prasad sings to Kali. He's just singing to his God. And let's hear now what the song is about. My God, my God, Elahi, Elahi, why hast thou forsaken me? Lama, Lama Savaktani, why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Okay, so thus far, people in camp suffering are like, see? 
He's roaring. God is denying him help. He's obviously suffering. But remember, these are not his words. He's singing a song. This is not his sentiment. He's echoing a sentiment. But now, it's, there's more. You, this is typically what happens if we take something out of context, we forget the rest of it. Like, you know how they say blood is thicker than water? No. Blood is thicker. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. That's the real statement. And it's the act, actual opposite of what people mean when they say blood is thicker than water. They say, oh, family, we're family, so you must like help me with my loan. Buzz off. The family of spirit is the real family. Blood of the covenant is thicker than what? The water of the womb. Just because my body came from your body, I'm now related to you. I'm not saying you, you should be very reverential to your parents. I'm just, I'm Indian. So that's in me, but I'm just saying, it. okay. Now the rest, oh God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not in the night season. I'm not sad. Now the rest, but thou art holy. Oh, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of man and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him then, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked having closed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But, but be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Deliver my soul, my darling, from the sword and from the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. All ye the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them. That the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. 
it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation, a seed. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Do you see? The song is not what it's made out to be. The song is about accepting the will of the Lord with joy. I trusted you and you did deliver me. Now, the beginning of the song shouldn't confuse you. We have many songs like this in Bangla, right? When will dawn the blessed day when I shall behold thy feet? When will Mother Kali save me? This, this note, oh Lord, this note of mumukshutvam, of longing, is satisfied by the rest of the song. So that's my claim. Those who would say that he was crying out in despair, I don't think so. I think he was crying out in exuberant joy, praising the Lord before the congregation, paying his debts, meaning just enjoying the rest of his karma. So what does Swamiji say? They will laugh and hate thee, great one, but pay them no heed. Go thou from place to place and help them out of darkness. In Song of the Sanyasin, Swamiji says it that way. You know, So let the river of karma float it down. Who cares what happens to the body? Let one put garlands on, let another kick this frame. Care not, its job is done. That sentiment you see in this poem. So my invitation to you is to read Swami Vivekananda's Song of the Sanyasin next to this um, Psalms 22. And you'll see that it's a prayer of great triumph, a prayer of great strength. This is not a man in despair. This is a man in love. Om Aing Meri Putra Yesu Christo Devaya Namaha. Salutations to Jesus Christ, the God-man, Son of Mary. Om Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Thy will be done, Lord. Om, thou art the self of myself. I pray that I may recognize this in my times of defeat, in my times of pain, in my times of sorrow, both physically and mentally. Lord, may I remember always that it is you and you alone who art the body, who art the mind. And so suffering is no suffering when there is this acceptance. May I always accept everything just as it is, knowing that it is thy will. And let me enjoy that because it reminds me of thee. And in being reminded of thee alone, I am suffused with joy, for thou art joy itself. So how can one fail to be joyful when one calls upon thee, the self of the self, the indweller who dwells in all? How can one fail to experience great bliss in love when one opens one's eyes to see that same Lord in all beings? I will not call you brothers and sisters, nay, for thou art the self of myself, embodied as all these other people. O oh Lord, may I remember you in times of health and in times of sickness. May I remember you in times of sorrow and in times of happiness. May I remember you in my enlightenment. May I remember you in my delusion, for thou art there all along. May I remember thee, Lord. May I remember thee. Oh, peace, peace, peace. Glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you, one and all. Let's call it. Okay, next week, we're going to have another lecture. It's the third of three. <laughs> and it's going to be on the art of prayer, the Christ's message 
of practice. So we had the Christ's message of renunciation last week. Then today we had the Christ's message of forgiveness. And then next week, Christmas time, just thereabouts, 26th, I think, we'll have Christ's message of um, practice. And we'll talk about what is prayer? How does it compare to meditation? And how do we pray? Can we pray for worldly stuff? What is prayer? How does it work? And we'll reference like books like The Art of Prayer, which is an anthology of Orthodox Desert Fathers. We'll talk a little bit about Orthodox Christianity. Um, we'll talk about practicos or chapters on prayer from Evagrius of Pontius. We'll look at that and we'll compare it to the life and teachings of Sri Ramakrishna. That's coming up next week. Classes are happening as usual this week, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Hatha Yoga, then Friday, 5 p.m. Hatha Yoga, 6 p.m. Um, we're doing Bhakti Sutra. This week, hopefully, Mother willing, by the grace of God, we can do also Aprochana Bhuti again. So we put that down a little bit just to kind of pick up the Bhakti Sutra. But remember, our intention on Friday evenings is to do a Bhakti text next to a Jnana text to see that there is no conflict. So hopefully this week, we can resume that. We'll spend the first part of the time together doing our Bhakti Sutra class. The second part, uh, doing the Jnana Aprochana Bhuti of Shankara class. So please come to that. It's Friday at 6 p.m. till about maybe 8-ish. 7.38-ish, thereabouts. So I'll see you Wednesday. I'll see you Friday. Thursday, the Vignana Bhairava class is going on as usual. And please consult Emily's um, schedule. You'll see Emily's schedule there. I'm sure Emily will remind us. Emily is something on Tuesdays and Saturdays. I don't, I don't want to misquote. So Emily, make sure you tell them. So that's happening. And thank you so much all for coming. Let's go into Q&A now, yes.